Welcome all to Softcast for this week's special episode. I was lucky enough to have prolific scientist and author Dr. Stephanie Seneff on with me to discuss the politically charged and thus pretty confusing issue of mRNA. It is a heavily politicized emotional topic, there is no doubt. The danger of dissent is that many people are understandably scared, sick of being locked indoors and facing immense pressures financially, psychologically and health-wise, and they are being sold the idea that there is an endpoint here. There is a clear, certain way to end it, and those who dissent or question, unfortunately, with life as most of us know, for those anticipating a simple cause and effect scenario or outcome, things are of course much more nuanced and complex than this in complex systems and typically, as with most, much of the material you will hear spoken about references a research paper Dr. Senef published with co-author Greg Nye in the to which I have linked. It is a highly technical entry if you're a pleb like me, however still worth reading for understanding the extent of how little we understand about what might happen as a Stephanie has an intimidating academic record as a senior research scientist at MIT, where she has had continuous affiliation for more than five decades. After receiving four degrees from MIT in biophysics, electrical engineering, and computer science, she has conducted research in. Stephanie is currently a senior research scientist, being MIT's highest research rank at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. However, for over a decade, since 2008, she has directed her attention towards the role of nutrition, and here we continue very much in the same vein as the species intervenes in another natural process, and what could this mean for us in the future? <laughs> it's a strange world, I'll tell you. Absolutely <laughs> bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Um, and that's kind of why we're here talking, I guess, is to right. try to make some sense out of it. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it, uh, particularly considering uh, the rather unique times in which we're living. Um, and I think your messages are quite important. I initially came across your work on the uh, herbicide uh, glyphosate. Um, or Roundup, as it's more commonly known. I had uh, for some time been interested in promoting regenerative agricultural practices, and obviously people uh, dealing with these themes uh, often come across topics like uh, you know Roundup and herbicides and various other things. Um, more recently, after getting in contact with you, uh, you expressed another interest, which I guess fits the theme of uh, human folly, um, at least from the perspective of some people, <laughs> Um, and that is the impacts of mRNA vaccines, uh, specifically for the coronavirus. And that will, of course, be the subject that we'll look in uh, detail into today. Um, thematically, I think that these two subjects are not necessarily too different. They are, in a sense, a kind of manipulation by humans of what we'd call natural systems, in which, I guess, mechanisms um, in nature, uh, molecules are involved are apparently uh, conditioned in nature to have certain aversions and reactions and humans have come along in their own own way with their own ideas and have attempted to solve problems as they see them. Um, 
So to start with, can I ask, in a biographical sense perhaps, how did you fall in with these kinds of concerns and issues, since I actually believe you're an AI researcher by trade? That's right. I spent most of my career writing software for um, to allow com- computers to communicate with humans using natural speech, so precursors of, of iPhone, Siri, and Amazon Echo. Um, around about 2007 time frame, I was getting concerned because I saw the autism rates going up year by year, and, and I recognized that if, it, if the trend continued, we'd be in big trouble in a decade or two. So I wanted to figure out, I knew it had to be something in the environment. Uh, you know, they claim it's genetics, but genetics doesn't change that fast. So it had to be environmental. And I, I was determined to figure out what it was. And I looked at vaccines actually for qu- quite a bit. That was one of the things I looked at because a lot of people were saying the child was fine until they got the MMR vaccine, that sort of thing. So, um, but I was, but after five years, I was pretty sure I didn't have the the answer, and I uh, I was getting frustrated. I, I understood a lot more about what autism is in terms of, you know, issue, the kids have a lot of issues besides their cognitive problems. You know, with gut gut uh, a lot of gut discomfort and bloating and diarrhea, constipation, lots of problems with their gut. A lot of them. So I felt it was something that was poisoning them that they were eating. Um, and I didn't have any idea that it could be glyphosate because like everybody else, I believed it was perfectly safe. Um, although I knew it was very pervasive in the environment. And it just turned out I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a two hour presentation on glyphosate. I did not know the word when I walked into the room. That was in 2012. Uh, after I heard the presentation, I was convinced I had found the answer. It was that clear because the things he talked about that he felt glyphosate was causing were things that I saw in autism. It fit extremely well. And I feel like my first instincts were right. After looking now for almost a decade, I'm even more convinced than ever that glyphosate is the primary cause. And it's not just autism. It's obesity, diabetes, fatty liver disease, pancreatic cancer, thyroid cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Alzheimer's, ADHD. I mean, there's a huge list of diseases that are going up dramatically in the population in step with the rise in glyphosate usage and of course they come back with correlation doesn't mean causation but in this case i think it does and my book uh, toxic legacy which has just come out july 1st i have it here um this book uh, goes into detail about what i believe to be one of the insidious cumulative mechanisms of glyphosate to cause all of these diseases it's quite remarkable the mechanism of toxicity uh, disrupts proteins throughout the body, and uh, that's how these disease ha- diseases happen. Absolutely fascinating metabolism biology story, I believe. Um, for me, it's gripping. I think a lot of people get their eyes glazed over with all the biology, but I tried to simplify it for the more general audience. I, I worked hard to simplify the the biology, but I think it still can be a reach for some people, but it's um, fascinating, really fascinating stuff. I can attest to that. The book is really excellent, and I'd recommend to the audience to check it out. Um, I believe people don't really understand the mechanisms in the human gut and how how much they do impact our general health, uh, whether it's mental or physical. Uh, And this is actually something that I guess science is just starting to comprehend. So it's definitely possible that there are mechanisms that we don't understand that uh, glyphosate could absolutely be impacting, and we just wouldn't know to look for it. Oh, that's so true. And in fact, we're looking for it now because we're seeing the dysfunction. You know, we're seeing uh, that when the microbes get uh, out of balance, lots of bad things happen. 
And so now they've actually recently they've really there've been some really great papers that have come out with huge amounts of data analyzing the whole proteome of the, of the gut microbiome. I mean it's massive, you know, efforts with computers that are able to um to cast a a, a broad gl- glimpse over the over the complexity of the of the gut microbiome and they're realizing that you know everybody's microbiome is unique. Um there's certain trends that are associated with various diseases. And there's certainly a sort of general characterization of pathogens, uh, growing too, too many pathogens, too few beneficial bacteria, overgrowth of yeast. These kinds of patterns are happening. The gut is too uh, basic. So we're seeing that the colon is somehow the pH has, has been changed over time. And I think the glyphosate is causing this increase in the pH of the gut, which is then causing a very big uh, imbalance in the microbes that's then causing a loss of um, critical metabolites. and and certainly. The, the critical uh, enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts in the plants, which is called EPSP synthase, is an enzyme that many of our gut microbes have, and many of them have a version of it that's sensitive to glyphosate. And I think that's a key factor in how it disrupts the gut because it's killing off these beneficial bacteria like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria that have this sensitive gene and that we depend on for many nutrients that our own cells can't make for themselves. Mm -hmm. So we are realizing today how many different things the gut microbiome does for us, for the host. It's really a symbiotic relationship. And in some sense, I think we're kind of what we are is a home for the microbes, you know, Mm -hmm. that's really what defines us more than anything else. Have you heard of this notion of the holobiont? And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's this idea that human beings as a cluster of wandering cells, I guess we could describe it that way, uh, are host to the microbes, as you say, and that <clears throat> not only our food choices uh, affect the dysbiosis that most people seem to have these days, but also that there's an evolutionary framework here in which the microbes that inhabit us uh, engage in things like horizontal gene transfers and and the, the swapping of genetic material between us and the microbes, and that something like glyphosate could literally be impacting our evolutionary trajectory. Oh, I totally buy into all of that. It's so fascinating. And even, I mean, I think the viruses, you know, we hear all about COVID-19 these days, and then all these different viruses. We have lots and lots of viruses in our body all the time, and they're not doing harm. And in fact, I think the viruses, and there are viruses that infect bacteria, there are lots and lots of them. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Viruses that infect bacteria, that infect humans. I mean, it's just like this mass of, of life. Uh, life forms, their, their genetic, uh, their collective genome hugely outmatches ours. You know, we're like 1% of the genomic uh, information in our body, our own cells. We're, we're really puny compared to the information content of all these species that inhabit our body. And they're able, as you say, to exchange genes and then to exchange genes with us. And I think the viruses are a major agent of human evolution, eventually working their genome, genomic code into our genome, and often to provide us with critical new raw materials to help us solve critical problems. So I actually think there's a, a concept that I have that this this virus that we are facing today is actually a, a biological attempt to uh, to help offset the, uh, the the damage that's being done by glyphosate, that there's a positive aspect to it in terms of repairing the um, the mitochondria, for example, that get thoroughly disrupted by glyphosate. That's an interesting notion. That's not something I've heard before. Um, so let, let's get into that. Do, do you think that this virus is natural? Do you think that it was manufactured? I know I don't want to get you in trouble. Feel free not to answer that, but 
How do you feel about that? Oh, yeah, well, I've been reading all the literature. I mean, we've all probably been swimming in information that's contradictory and really having dis- disconnect between this and that and the other and having a hard time knowing what to believe. That's certainly been the case for me. And when I first heard about the possibility, it seemed plausible to me. And so I've been following the literature and the progression of different ideas on that. And it's growing strength. You know, it was a conspiracy theory for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, enough information came out that it became very difficult to deny that it came out of the lab. And then it's the question of whether it's intentional or accidental. And then there's the question of what was the purpose of developing these viruses in the lab. So there's many layers of questions beyond that first one of whether it's a a natural virus or a synthetic one. I, I, I guess my best guess would be that it is coming out of a lab. Um, that it it did, and I suspect it evolved, my theory would be that it evolved in the context of uh, mice that had been engineered to have human ACE2 receptors. They're doing absolutely wild things in these labs. You have no idea. Mm. I am so um, stunned by the capabilities that they have to do these incredible research projects that involve manipulating life these days. There's a lot of power there, and they're very excited about these messenger RNA vaccines because they believe they're going to be powerful for, for healing disease. I think they're not going to get over the hurdles. And um, so the virus itself has part, ports, uh, portions of it that look like they must have been intentionally inserted. And we have the full uh, technology today to assemble that virus from scratch. So if you have the code, you know, once you have the code, you can just write it out and make the DNA with the, with the technology that we have today, which is really quite awesome. And terrifying at the same time that, you know, humans have gotten way ahead of themselves because we've developed capabilities that are beyond our understanding. And we're manipulating life in ways that we have no idea what the consequences will be. And I think that this virus may be an example of a consequence that was unanticipated, but has really, you know, caused a huge, huge disruption of the entire globe as a consequence of a what seems like a minor thing, a leak of a microbe from a lab. Mm. Really, really stunning um, concepts there that uh, are hard to get your mind around. Sure. I I can attest to that. Uh, I have zero bioscience background. I possess a fairly pedestrian intelligence at best, I would say. And I know that compared to the population at large, I'm probably better informed. So given the complexity of these things and given that no one really understands them or not, not many people anyway, I think there's a real danger there that people are potentially being subjected to things that they just have no comprehension of at all. Right, and people are producing things that they have no comprehension of. That's what's scary. These, that is these scary. people, these yeah. mad scientists in these labs that are creating these these things that they and they do have some clues, but they seem to want to ignore them, you know, of mm. the consequences, of the negative consequences. They somehow want to hope that those will go away because they're seeing trouble very clearly, and yet they're just in denial. Uh, it, it amazes me uh, how much they're willing, what the risk they're willing to take with the entire world population yeah, with respect to both the virus and the vaccines. Absolutely. It's, it's quite worrying. For me and the audience, uh, we hear a lot about the, the mRNA vaccine, uh, you know, mitochondrial RNA vaccine. Um, firstly, to, to keep it simple, what is RNA uh, what is a virus? How does it differ from DNA in a basic biological framework? And then I guess we can talk about what is the messenger RNA and how does the vaccine pro- propose to utilize it? 
Right. And yeah, well, so those are very basic questions in biology. And there's kind of a mantra in biology that sort of the principle, basic principle of biology is this DNA to RNA to protein concept, where the DNA is the genetic code that's in your genome, in your nucleus of, your, of all your cells. That's the human DNA. And then, of course, there's DNA in all these other uh, organisms that have their own personalized DNA in their genome. And that's what they call the code of life. And it's made out of just four different units, which are called nucleotides. And they have they use the letters A, C, G, T to describe them. So it's just a sequence of these four letters in a, you know, in a certain order that characterizes a, the code for a particular protein. It's quite fascinating, really. And you peel off the code three letters at a time, <clears throat> and the three-letter sequence maps to a specific amino acid. And there's about 20 of these amino acids. You could make 64 different three-letter codes. So there's a lot of redundancy. So sometimes several different codes code for the same amino acid. But you can just read off the code and assemble the, the amino acid to make sequence to make the protein. And that's what happens from the RNA. So the DNA gets converted into RNA, which is a very similar molecule, but not quite the same, but also still has the code. And then the RNA gets transported into the, into the cytoplasm, where it then makes the protein. So the protein is assembled from the RNA code by a set of proteins that are involved with that process. It's kind of circular. It's kind of interesting that they can mm -hmm. make themselves, you know, but the ones that can make the make the proteins from the RNA, I know how to make themselves from that code. Um, but anyway, the um, so the proteins are turned out according to the code from the messenger RNA, which is a sort of piece of the full genomic spread. Pieces of it are pulled out as messenger RNA, which codes for specific proteins. So there is a, a particular protein in the virus called the spike protein, which is in its code. And that turns out to be a really critical protein for the virus. That's the protein that causes it, allows it to bind to these ACE2 receptors. I don't know if you've heard about these ACE2 receptors in our cells. That's how the virus gains entry, by binding to those using that spike protein. And then that spike protein then reshapes itself and allows the virus to get into the cell. So it acts like a sphere and goes in and delivers the RNA code into the cell. So that spike protein is really, really important for the virus. And the idea with these vaccines is to just take that one protein, not the whole virus, just that one protein, make this artificial messenger RNA unit out of it, which is the code for that particular protein, and then package it up inside these particles, nanoparticles that look a lot like LDL, you know, the lipid particle that people have in their blood. If it's too high, they get put on a statin drug. Mm -hmm. They make these, they make them look like LDL so that you'll be able to use the cell's natural mechanisms that it has to bring LDL in, to, to bring in these, these little um, vaccine particles as if they're LDL particles. And then when they get inside, they open up and that messenger RNA gets freed up. And that's when it just starts making, it's all set up to start making protein. The cell can't turn it off. And that protein is very toxic. Mm. Are viruses or viri, I suppose, are they alive? Oh, that's an excellent question. I, I can't answer that. I can't participate in that debate because they're so they're so interesting kind of at the edge of life, you know, mm. they're they're I don't know. It, it's um, they're 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 not that different from some things that the cells, human cells produce themselves, which are called exosomes. I've been reading a lot about exosomes and they're quite fascinating as well. And they have a lot of similar properties as viruses. Many of them do have a. Um, DNA material inside them, very genetic code, as well as proteins, as well as lipids. So it's kind of the same, in a way, very similar to the um, to the virus. And so at what point does an exosome become a virus? Or what is the distinction between an exosome and a virus? The boundaries become a little unclear. 
And we don't think exosomes are living things. So the virus depends upon the host to be able to re reproduce itself. So in the sense that it, it can reproduce itself, uh, maybe that's a definition of life. And, and it has that property, but only with the assistance of the host. So it's a sort of a parasite, I suppose you could call it in that sense. Mm. It is worrying then that we're tampering with something like this with, with little knowledge or ability to define exactly what it is. Right. Yes. There, I remember being fascinated by viruses as a child. I had a whole series of science books I would get every month in the mail. And there was one that was on viruses. And I read that book. I was so fascinated. I was probably like in my early teens or something. Um, I, I, just, I just was uh, mystified by this concept of these tiny things that were sort of somewhere between life, living and not living, you know. So it's been a long ride with me with the viruses. And when I was at MIT, I actually spent one year in the, in the biology department working in David Baltimore's lab where they were working on retroviruses. And he, they were the people who discovered this concept of, of uh, RNA going back to DNA through these retroviruses, things like HIV. And um, so I, I was, uh, have had some close experiences with viruses in, in my previous uh, career. <laughs> so. How interesting, yeah. I, I heard a theory once that um, perhaps RNA was the initial condition of life on earth and that DNA came along and effectively parasitically used it to build on top of it. Uh, what do you think of that line of thinking? That I've heard that too and it makes sense to me because RNA is at the center. I mean, it can make the protein and it can go back to DNA using this, this retroviral um, enzymes. And in fact, humans have enzymes that can convert RNA to DNA as well. And I, I recently read about these line, line 1 enzymes, they're called, and they're really fascinating because they can convert RNA to DNA and they can integrate it. Other enzymes can help them. They integrate it into our genome. So it's possible to take the messenger RNA in the vaccine and get it uh, permanently installed in, our own, in the human genome. That's not an impossibility. Whether it's very, very rare, I don't know. But, you know, cancer cells have expressed these proteins and um, immune cells express these proteins and sperm express them. And in fact, I found a really fascinating paper on sperm, uh, which, which talked about the ability of sperm to take foreign messenger RNA, which is exactly what's in these vaccines, uh, convert it to DNA, package it up in these things called plasmids which are little, you know, little pellets containing this DNA, circular DNA, ship them out, and then at the time of the fertilization, when the fertilized egg is, is, is prepared, the fertilized egg actually takes up these plasmids that are being released by the sperm, all the sperm, not just the one that fertilizes it, taking up these plasmids and retaining them. And these plasmids are able to reproduce themselves and they're able to produce protein. So these are DNA versions of the RNA that's in the vaccine. In theory, this could totally happen because it's been shown that it happens with other proteins that are foreign messenger RNA. It's exactly the same thing. And that, and this paper said those plasmids could survive all the way through the, the fetal growth and in, in be present in the infant. And that infant could carry those for its entire life and pass them on to its offspring. So that was really, really amazing to me. It is amazing and also most disturbing when you consider the potential implications of this on, on the future of uh, the human species. Uh, and we'll get to a bit more of that a little bit later because there are a couple of things in your, your paper that I, I'm going to bring up now that um, were, were quite disturbing in, in that ilk. Um, so in, just in general, just to clarify, and with absolutely no judgment from me whatsoever, because I'm very unemotional and perhaps agnostic about knowledge and science. I'm just, just interested in, in knowledge. Um, 
Would you describe yourself as generally skeptical of vaccinations or is it more so the case that it's this particular mRNA vaccination that, that you're skeptical of? I would say that I've reached a point in, 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 through a long process. At this point in my life, I have decided that I believe that no vaccine is beneficial, that the that the risk outweighs the benefit for all vaccines. I say that, you know, that's a very strong statement. Um, I, my, I have four children and they were all fully vaccinated, except for the last one, sort of one of the last vaccines, the with the DDT vaccine. A friend of mine had had a child uh, who got a DDT vaccine, ran a high fever had seizures a week later, was later diagnosed with severe autism, and that planted a seed in my mind. But at that time, this had happened, and my son was due for his booster shot for the, GD, the DPT shot, diphtheria, pertussis, and, te and te tetanus. And, um, and I told the doctor, no, he can't have it. And the doctor said, oh, that's not a problem, because pretty soon it's going to be probably taken off the market because there'll be too many issues with it. And that was like in 1983. And in 1986, they passed the, the law that got the vaccine industry off the hook so that, you know, they could no longer be um, sued for any damages. And it all came to this vaccine court situation, which was won by the government. And it really uh, opened a huge door for the vaccine industry. And that's, of course, the pharmaceutical industry. And they have been really capitalizing on that. And so since 1986, you know, the number of vaccines that kids get has just gone up and up and up. And um, I think it's frightening. And we see the children today are very, very sick, you know, with all kinds of autoimmune diseases. I think over 50 percent of the kids in the United States have some kind of uh, autoimmune disease, chronic disease. You know, and um, it's just really sad to see that. And there have now been a number of studies that have compared vaccinated with unvaccinated children. And they have consistently found a huge difference in the prevalence, in the frequency of these the diseases, um, the autoimmune diseases, things like asthma and eczema and ADHD and, and autism, of course. All of these things are higher, are, are at a higher rate in unvaccinated kids compared to vaccinated kids in the studies that have been done. Quite a consistent story. And sometimes by a large amount. I suppose it's this thing where letting nature take its course is somewhat unpalatable to most people. And no, no one wants to see children die of diseases or whatever else that the vaccines are purported to prevent. However, I, I definitely I believe I'm more in line with you um, that perhaps the juices. Not, not worth the squeeze in many respects with vaccines and trying to subvert uh, really natural selection, I suppose, isn't it really? It perhaps will lead to worse outcomes down the track. Yes, and in fact, I've been researching that whole topic because it's quite fascinating to me. And I'm aware of studies that have shown they've compared you know, children who caught measles versus children who were protected through the vaccination. And they compare them as adults and they find that the ones who had measles as a child or mumps. I mean, there's these various, you know, childhood diseases that in my generation, kids just got through that. Um, the ones who had the disease had had less significantly less um, uh, problems with things like heart disease and cancer. So it's really, really interesting that I believe that these infections are a natural part of, of life and that the vaccine, that the virus in, in that illness is doing something very important for the host uh, to, to repair their immune system and to strengthen it. So there's a, there's a whole process that's going on there where the virus is actually helping the host to heal, but it's a sort of intense program that has to be um, painful sometimes, you know, if, and especially if your immune system is sick, which it will be if you've been exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals. So I think that 
you'll see that the kids who get really sick with the measles are the ones who have immune deficiency to begin with, and they need the virus more than the other kids. The kids who have a healthy immune system, they don't really need the virus, so they clear it right away, they don't get sick. And the same is true for COVID-19. The people who are getting really sick are the ones who have diabetes, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, all these uh, conditions that are associated with glyphosate. You know, those are the people that are more susceptible to bad outcomes with COVID-19. And I think it's no accident. It's because glyphosate is disturbing their innate immunity. And I have a whole chapter in my book on the immune system, glyphosate and the immune system. And I show theoretically how I would expect it to cause disruption of critical proteins, for example, in the lungs, the surfactant proteins that normally would trap the virus. They become defective in the presence of glyphosate. And then the virus is able to multiply more freely and it gets out of hand. And then you get this extreme response of the adaptive immune system that overpowers the body and causes intense symptoms. But the virus is actually achieving an important uh, strengthening. In the end, if once you survive the disease, uh, your immune cells have been strengthened. In particular, I believe it's their mitochondria that have been repaired through the process that happens in the lungs in response to the virus. It's quite it fascinating. Makes- yeah, it makes absolute sense. There's symbiosis all through nature. So why would we uh, assume that the same thing wasn't going on there? It makes complete sense uh, what you're saying. Yeah, and you know, I would much rather, even if I had to put up with a week of being sick in bed with a flu or something, if in exchange I didn't get rheumatoid arthritis, it, to me it would be a very fair exchange. I'd much Absolutely. rather you know be sick in bed for a week than to have to put up with rheumatoid arthritis for years and years. Mm, absolutely. You, you published a technical article in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice and Research uh, that I will link in the notes to the show for the audience. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so let's set the scene here. When COVID erupted, who collaborated in terms of the companies and I guess US government departments mainly um, to bring about this particular vaccine? Yeah, well, Pfizer right, and Moderna were the two key uh, mRNA vaccine uh, companies. And the U.S. government, you know, launched this campaign to get to get these vaccines out the door as quickly as possible, skipping a lot of steps. And the, and the technology is very, very new and very, very unknown, very, very much unstudied. So huge questions are left unanswered as far as the consequences that they might have that we just don't know. And so it's extremely bold and reckless to decide that the entire world needs to be have this injection done with with little knowledge of, of uh, long-term consequences and short-term consequences as well. You know, it, it was an incredibly reckless decision, in, in my opinion, to, to, to think that you could fix this problem through these injections. Um, but the governments have, uh, it's so interesting to me how the companies seem to be so powerful and the governments just line up and, and, and all of them seem to fall in place to think, oh yes, this is the only thing we can do to, to fight this infection. Uh, you know, and they've almost intentionally suppressed a lot of natural treatments that could be done early in the disease process that would keep you out of the hospital. And especially, I feel, they haven't said anything about simple things like eating a certified organic diet and getting out in the sunlight, which would be two very important things to do in changing your lifestyle to improve your immune system health so that when you get COVID-19, you don't have a problem with it. They should be shouting that from the rooftops and the government's saying nothing about that, nothing. I was commenting to a friend the other day, we were talking about the absurdity of being locked down indoors without any sunlight um, with other people. Uh, No doubt if you had the virus, you'd be spreading it everywhere and increasing the viral load. No fresh air, no exercise, uh, terrible food, probably for most people eating Uber Eats or whatever else it is. 
it seems like just about the dumbest thing possible that a government could do is to lock people indoors. <laughs> Yeah, it's just crazy because it's been shown in multiple studies that vitamin D deficiency is a huge risk factor for COVID, for bad outcome. One study, I think, said 90%. They thought vitamin D deficiency could account for 90% of the fatalities. So it's so such a simple thing to get out in the sun. Uh, I certainly am a sun worshiper, and I really believe in, in the sunlight, not just for vitamin D, but also for general immune health yeah, in same. ways other than vitamin D. Yeah. yeah, we're lucky in Australia. We live about... Uh, two kilometers away from the sun. It's so, so damn hot here. We, we have abundant access to it. Um, in terms of the corporate uh, influences, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I can attest to the fact, having worked in a corporate capacity for most of my life, that absolutely it's not hard to lobby governments. So I don't understand why people think that that's such a, a far shot, particularly with huge corporations like this it's absolutely understandable that they have complete power over politicians and other people that's not up for question in my opinion um and in terms of this he's a controversial man and you referenced him very briefly in your report and that that's bill and melinda gates and their foundation that supported research in 2018 uh specifically that you linked to in your report um what is your view of this research report and this particular foundation and their driving motivations. I'm not actually sure which report you're referring to. Do you? Can you give me? It was a, a report more in 2018. It was uh -huh. in your article, um, and I believe in the report. Um, oh, it was about yeah. the vaccines, uh, vaccine development, or yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah, 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 and the prediction of how long it would take, and it was like 12 years before the um, these ra radical new vaccines would be ready. For for um for show for show you know yeah showtime and um yeah and that report was saying that um that it would take a long time and yet here they are within a few months they've got the vaccine ready to go so it, it was outrageously fast compared to what was predicted in that report yes sure and I believe they classified it into three categories which I found interesting there was simple complex and unprecedented vaccines. Yeah, and simple and complex vaccines, as you as you said, represent the standard or modified applications of what we have now, um, stuff that exists and in, and is currently used. Um, I'd like to understand what is this mysterious, unprecedented category of vaccine? What what were they well, referring to there? Well, for example, these messenger RNA vaccines, because they are really, really unique and new technology that's never been tried on humans and ha actually has hardly been tried on animals. So they they just really jump the gun when they thought, you know, this is going to work because it's um, it's so uh, far away from anything natural that I, you can't imagine that it would just work fine, you know. And so they understood that um, that if you inject RNA into the body, it will immediately disintegrate because we have enzymes, very powerful enzymes to break it apart into the individual nucleotides. Our body doesn't want that messenger RNA to stay, stick around. They knew that. So they had to figure out a way to keep that from happening. And that involved many, many manipulations that ended up with something that was extremely unnatural. So one thing, and we talked about all these steps in our in our paper, but one thing was these four nucleotides, and one of them is called uridine in the case of RNA. And they changed all the uridines in this. So there's four of them. So sort of one fourth of the content is all these uridines, and every one of them was changed into something called methyl pseudouridine, a different molecule. And by doing that, they it kind of made it really hard for these enzymes to break it apart. They're, they're working on the idea of keeping it around so that it can make lots of spike protein. Then they also 
um, changed the actual nucleotides. Every place they could, they replaced an A or a U with a G or a C, and they, that made it GC-rich because they knew that GC-rich RNA is much better at making protein, makes it much faster, makes much more. And so they, they manipulated it. So they changed the code of the RNA compared to what the virus was using itself to make it more willing to make lots of spike protein in a hurry. And then they piled in all this polyethylene glycol and mixed that in with the, with the, um, with the RNA to help to stabilize it. Because the polyethylene is these big, long molecules that kind of gum up with, they're all conglomerated with the RNA. And that also keeps the body from being able to break it down. Then they added these cationic lipids. And these are not natural. These are unnatural lipids, synthetic lipids. That's fats. Cationic meaning positively charged. Because they knew that cationic lip lipids are something that the cells hate. And when it, it acts like aluminum, if you're familiar with aluminum and many of the vaccines, they put that in there to make mm, sure. to cause an immune reaction. So it that gets stuck in the brain, of course. Right, exactly. So the aluminum is very toxic in many of these vaccines that the kids are receiving. And this cationic lipid is kind of their answer. They couldn't put aluminum into the into the vaccine, probably because it would wipe out the RNA. But they um, they put this cationic lipid in there, which is um, positively charged and which causes a cell to get really upset. So the muscle cells are receiving this mess of stuff, and they get really upset, and they call in the immune cells, which is what they want. The research researchers want this to happen. Immune cells come in. They take up the messenger RNA packets, and these things look like LDL particles. They're designed to look like uh, natural human uh, lipid particles so that the machinery in place will be able to take it up. And those cationic lipids also ha help to open it up so that the RNA gets freed up. And then they've manipulated the RNA to put some stuff on the beginning and some stuff on the end that makes it look exactly like a human messenger RNA protein, mRNA sequence ready to produce protein. They've manipulated it in that respect as well. So there's many, many different changes. And then they actually changed the code for the protein, put in a couple of prolines that cause it to be unable to um, reshape itself to, uh, to infect the cell. So it gets stuck on the ACE2 receptors, the, the version that the vaccine is making. And that's probably also a problem because it's causing things like heart failure. It's causing myocarditis in the, in the heart. I don't know if you've heard about this, but children are dying following the vaccine because their heart is inflamed. And I think that's because the spike protein that's being produced from the vaccine is sticking to the ACE2 receptors in the heart, which, cause, which disables them. And that causes an increase in something called angiotensin II, which then causes this inflammatory response that can lead to heart failure. Sure. In terms of the data regarding the efficacy of this vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine seems to have a strangely high initial efficacy, very much beyond the estimates, say, outlined in the report that we mentioned before. Uh, I know, for example, in my own job, if I received uh, you know, financial data that completely defied my initial estimates, uh, I would be scrutinizing those numbers mm -hmm. because I mm -hmm. would think, well, obviously there's a problem here. There's a wrong input or, uh, you know, something, something has happened. Um, according to your research, what criticisms should be leveled at the initial data sets um, submitted by Pfizer and Moderna et al.? Hmm. <laughs> Again, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at here. <laughs> you yeah, have... yeah. No, nothing too conspiratorial. I'm just wondering why 
Um, so we have the unprecedented vaccines where you have a, a very small efficacy to start with. Um, right. Well, all this business yeah. of fixing the RNA is what kept it sturdy, which kept it from getting broken down, which made it produce and also this accelerated production of spike protein. And the spike protein is really toxic. So the immune cells, you know, make tons of spike protein and it's toxic and they just go crazy with that and they're 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 crying alarms you know they don't really know how to deal with this mess they really have no prior experience of anything this horrible mm. and um and they jump into the uh lymph system you know they the lymph nodes swell up under the arms that's a common symptom they go into the lymph system they get to the spleen and we've talked about that how the immune cells pile up in the spleen loaded with this messenger RNA, furiously producing spike protein that they can't stop doing because this thing has been so elegantly designed. There's no way to turn it off. And we don't know how long the messenger RNA lasts, but the intent was to get it to last as long as possible. Their notion was, we just got to make lots of antibodies to spike protein. And whatever way it takes to do that, we're going to do it. And we're going to manipulate. And, and so they understand how if you do this, it's going to help. If you do that, it's going to help. Let's do it all. You know, let's do it all. And we'll make sure that we get, and they do, they get a fantastic antibody response, much higher than what you get if you just catch the disease. And that's very, very worrisome because the spike protein is a, um, is a, has a lot of sequences in it that are similar to sequences in human proteins that are known to be associated with autoimmune disease. And what that means is when you develop antibodies, lots of antibodies to the spike protein, you have a potential to cause autoimmune disease because those antibodies will misrecognize uh, human proteins by mistake and they'll bind to them and they'll cause trouble. And that'll cause things like multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis and celiac disease, all these autoimmune diseases. Many of them are connected to proteins that um, it's been shown experimentally that antibodies to the spike protein also bind to these other proteins. So that's very frightening to me. Mm -hmm. You know, this overabundant production of antibodies to the spike is not a good thing for your general health. Sure. In terms of the initial problems with the vaccine that people have been having, such as vascular problems or various inflammatory responses. What, what is the data collection like? Does it leave a lot to be desired or are you seeing good numbers come through on people that are having bad reactions to the vaccine? Well, there's, there's tons and tons of reports in the VAERS database and the estimates are that it, the VAERS is probably, uh, you know, it could be as much as only one in 50 um, or even one in 100 cases that actually get reported in VAERS. VAERS is a vaccine adverse event reporting system. And it's a very useful system. And I've poured over the data. There's some shocking stories in there of, of individual cases and um, all kinds of different problems. Anaphylactic shock is a really big one. And that's because of the polyethylene glycol. That, that's well known that that is going to cause anaphylactic shock in people who have antibodies to it. And many people do have antibodies to polyethylene glycol. So that's one problem just because of that contaminant, that, that element in the, in the vaccines. Um, we're seeing that uh, you know, thrombos thrombocytosis, we're seeing this um, complete drop in platelet counts almost down to zero in certain people. Um, that uh, is especially in the in the um, uh, Johnson Johnson vaccine, which is a DNA vector vaccine. They have their own set of problems. I don't think they're any better than the messenger RNA vaccines. And um, they, all of them have the goal of making lots of antibodies to the spike protein. All of them produce the spike protein, which is a very toxic uh, protein. That um, <clears throat> the virus database has, uh, if you look at just uh, death, so people who died shortly after the vaccine, and there's lots and lots of reports. Um, I think it's over 10,000 now, I'm not sure, um, in the virus database. But the number over the first six months of this year of uh, death associated with these vaccines um, 
COVID vaccines is more than the number of deaths uh, reported for all of the all of the other vaccines for the previous 20 years. So, I mean, that's just a huge difference in the number of cases where death is associated with um, with a vaccine. It, they're much, much more toxic than um, than the other vaccines. There's another thing, um, Bell's palsy. And Bell's palsy is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. And I'm very worried about Parkinson's. I think that's a there's a strong signal for Parkinsonian symptoms in general with people responding to this vaccine. But the Bell's palsy is caused by a, a virus, a herpes virus. and um, and there's thousands of reports. Yeah, there's two, I don't know, 2,000 reports of uh, Bell's palsy associated with these vaccines. And there's practically none associated with any other vaccine in the history of the virus database. So these really, really strange things are happening in response to these vaccines that never happened in response to other vaccines. They're really very, very unique and very damaging. And, and another thing that I'm really worried about is uh, prion diseases because the spike protein is a prion-like protein. It has five of these glycine zipper motifs that are characteristic of, of prion proteins. And that's the mad cow disease. Remember in the cows uh, in, in Great Britain, they had all this issue with mad cow. It's a protein infectious agent. It's a prion protein that misfolds, and then it, it seeds misfolding for other proteins that are around. And so um, the spike protein can act as a seed protein to cause uh, neurodegenerative diseases that are associated with misfolded proteins. And that includes uh, Parkinson's disease, as I mentioned, and also Alzheimer's and CKD, Kutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is the human equivalent of mad cow, and uh, ALS. I mean, these are all really debilitating diseases that you don't want. Mm. And I, I am predicting that um, they're all going to show up in younger populations. They're going to show up in higher prevalence in the future. And it could be years or decades before you actually get the disease. But this, having had this vac vaccine many years ago, is going to predispose people to get it sooner. To, you know, to get it, to get it um, more intense. I think, and people to get it who wouldn't otherwise have gotten it. I think we're going to get, um, you know, an epidemic in, in these neurodegenerative diseases as a consequence of all the spike protein that's being produced by, by these uh, through these vaccines. Mm. How does the spike protein get into the brain? Uh, and what's the link to the uh, neurodegenerative diseases? Does it get into the bloodstream and somehow get into the brain? What, yes, well, actually, work? probably, and that's, again, a theoretical, but there's a lot of studies on Parkinson's disease that are very nice, and they show that it begins with foreign proteins, uh, prion-like proteins from, from infections in the gut, and then the immune cells respond, and the immune cells go to the spleen. They go to the germinal centers in the spleen, and that's where they can dictate and, and train the, uh, the B cells and the T cells to produce those antibodies, because you need to have a whole training process to get these antibodies that exactly match the protein of interest. So the spike protein is being carried into the uh, germinal centers of the spleen, um, in order to train the B cells and the T cells. And then, uh, and then what happens is that with that toxic load, the, um, the immune cells release these things called exosomes that I mentioned earlier, which mm -hmm. are little packets, little uh, lipid packets that contain contents. And what they're gonna contain is spike protein because these uh, immune cells are trying to shed. They're making all this spike protein at a high rate and they can't stop themselves. So they're packaging them up in these lipid particles and throwing them out the door. And then what's happening is it's quite interesting. They travel down the um, vagus nerve and up the vagus nerve and they reach the brainstem nuclei and the substantia nigra is the critical one associated with parkinson's disease so they get in there substantia nigra actually has a lot of ace2 receptors in there so that um that spike protein being delivered to um to the brainstem nuclei is going to be a huge problem for 
uh, seeding misfolded proteins and causing these neurodegenerative diseases. But that whole thing is worked out with Parkinson's independently of spike. They know that it begins at these germinal centers in the spleen where the antibodies are being built. And they also know from, we reported in our, in our uh, article about the um, messenger RNA vaccines being carried into the germinal centers in the, in the spleen, the very same place where these prion proteins begin is the place where the va vaccine ends up with these um, immune cells. So to me, it seems quite clear that, um, that we're going to see this, this increase in these neurodegenerative diseases. And it usually takes many years for the whole process. So it's slowly happening over time. You're getting worse and worse. And you reach some critical point when there's enough of these misfolded proteins in your brain that you start to see symptoms of disease. Being a male, I, I guess I'm going to be a little bit selfish for a second. And we did speak about sperm and the effect of RNA getting into sperm cells. Um, what is particularly disturbing to me, and we've spoken a little bit uh, here about short-term uh, effects and long-term effects on individuals, in terms of the species itself, if you introduced a spike protein of this nature into the human genome, through the human sperm, into the, the infant, um, what do you think could carry over into that individual, even if they never had the vaccine themselves? It was their parents that had it. Right. What kind of things could we see in the future? Well, you know, that's really wild to think about the possibility of that. Say an infant being born with, um, with spike protein, having, having been exposed to spike protein in utero because of this whole process. And therefore, I think being trained that spike is a human protein. So that uh, infant would be unable to develop any antibodies to the spike protein because it would already. It would think of it as a human protein. So if that infant caught the disease, it, its immune cells would not respond to the, to the uh, virus. And as a consequence, that infant would become a very good spreader of the disease. And there's actually a model for that in, in an infection, uh, a bovine diarrhea um, virus in cows that had exactly this problem that, the, uh, that the, the cows would be born that were carriers and they were spreading this virus to the entire herd. And so the, the, the grown-up cows would be getting sick uh, whereas the infant cow was, the, the calf was fine. So the calf is carrying the virus and unable to respond to it, but also unable to, to knock it out. So the virus is a, is a super spreader. So mm -hmm. I would predict we would have infants that were super spreaders is what would happen if one of these infants picked up that, um, that code from the sperm. Do they themselves have protection from it? Well, the answer is the really interesting thing. And I'm trying to figure out, it's an excellent question. I'm trying to think if they have the ability to make the spike protein, and maybe they come, it comes with some kind of control elements, you know, because you have all these proteins that you can make have control elements that will keep them from being produced except when they're needed. And whether there might be some way in which this uh, prion protein could have some utility in some situation. I mean, we don't understand the role of the prion protein, that the human prion protein. We don't understand what it does. But we know it's essential. So if you knock that protein out, you, you can't, you're not viable. And the prion protein that causes this horrible disease, CKD, is a very important protein to the body, but we don't understand what it does. So I find that really, really fascinating. There is something about, I have some theories, but they're pretty wild, so I'm not sure I want to talk about them. But, but okay. I, I don't know. Maybe there would be some way that that spike protein could actually be useful to us. And maybe that's the ultimate goal of this whole process is to get it incorporated and controlled. I mean, the important thing is to be able to control when it's produced under probably circumstances of extreme stress where it's needed to somehow solve 
some critical metabolic problem, something like that. So, I mean, it's, it's wild, wild science. I'm, uh, I'm happy to hear your wild, wild theories, Stephanie, if, you, if you're willing to share. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it has to do with, it, it gets a little complicated. It has to do with deuterium, and deuterium is heavy hydrogen. Okay. Uh, and you can, it, that's in water, isn't it? I yes, thought that's I right. It's a natural that. element in water, heavy hydrogen. And it turns out it's very important to keep the deuterium levels in the water in the mitochondria very low, or else they won't work well. And one thing I've discovered is that the uh, pro there are many proteins that are involved in making sure that, that, that the mitochondria have healthy water. And many of those proteins are disrupted by glyphosate. So we have, I think, a real problem with our mitochondria systemically in our society because of this problem that we can't keep the deuterium out of the mitochondria. So I have tremendous speculative idea that, the that these prion proteins, these misfolded proteins are fascinating because they have, all of them have a really important role in the body. And they go into the membranes of the cells. They form alpha helices and they go into the membranes. But they can turn into a different shape called the beta sheet and stick around in the cytoplasm. And eventually they can become these fibrils. So this is like the amyloid beta in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And it becomes these, these fibrils that accumulate in the brain. My notion, and it's completely speculative, is that those fibrils are able to trap deuterium and remove it from the water in order to improve the deuterium levels in the cell. So they're kind of trapping toxins, if you will, mm. in those fibrils in order to help the neurons to heal. And they found with Alzheimer's, they've got all these drugs that they're playing with. They've invested huge amounts of money with drugs that cut back on amyloid beta. And they've had miserable luck with those drugs. You know, it's really been, I think, a complete failure. Mm. But they think because they see those fibrils, they think they're the reason, they're the cause of the disease. But actually, they could be part of the solution. And the real disease is an inability to manage deuterium properly. Yeah. I'm so going to have to re-listen to that, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do have the remaining time. I know it's short, but I do want to get into ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement. Do you know about that? No, no idea. Please tell me. Yeah, we wrote about it in the paper, and it's starting to look like it's happening. And so we were predicting that it was a possibility that it would happen with these vaccines. Because it's well known that it's a problem. It's been a problem with many vaccines that have been under development over the years and have failed. And some of them have failed miserably after they were already uh, unleashed in the population and they started causing death. And so it's an um, antibody-dependent enhancement. And what it means is that there are antibodies you know, to the spike protein, for example, and they do bind to the spike protein. But that binding, is, so it's sort of enabling, normally it would enable the macrophages to clear it more efficiently and get rid of it. But there's another pathway that can happen where it actually enables the immune cells to take up the virus and, and cause it to reproduce. So it increases the ability of the virus to multiply inside the cell. It works the opposite from what you intended. And this can happen as the antibody levels drop. So the, the vaccine produces huge amounts of antibodies. They kind of coat the entire virus and it can't, it can't do this trick. Mm. But as the antibodies wane over time, they reaches a critical point when the person is exposed to the virus and the uh, antibodies are facilitating the virus's ability to multiply. And that means that the vaccinated people, if that happens, will have an increased risk of infection compared to the unvaccinated people at some point. And this has been measured with other vaccines, has it? Did I hear it has that correctly? happened in other vaccines and it's happened with coronavirus vaccines. Of course, no one's done it before with coronavirus too, but other coronaviruses, they've had this problem. So it's not, and other kinds of viruses as well. They've had this problem repeatedly with many different viruses. And they've had really struggled with how to get around it. And they're like very, very hopeful that these vaccines won't show that problem. 
but it's starting to look like they are. And it was looking pretty good for a while, but now it's starting to look, to look like they are. And there's a case, there's a situation in Cape Cod that was quite striking. And this caused the CDC to decide we have to wear masks again because they were moving in a direction where vaccinated people didn't have to wear face masks. Mm-hmm. Now they reversed that. And it's, I think, because of this incidence in Cape Cod over July 4th, a, a, a small town called Provincetown. It's a, it's a tourist tra- town. And they had a, a breakout of this Delta variant, which is a new strain. And that's another thing. The vaccines are facilitating the development yeah. of these. I did want to get get to that actually in a bit more detail just quickly. Um, so so I, uh, I, I have seen data around that um, the vaccine itself could be encouraging more virulent uh, forms of the actual uh, virus. Um, What's the mechanism that, how does this occur? And do you think that's where the Delta virus strain came from? Right. I get very frustrated because they're blaming the anti-vaxxers for the development of all these new strains. And it's actually, I think, the fault of the vaccines. I really believe that. And we wrote about it in our paper, Greg and I. So uh, Greg Nye was the person who collaborated collaborated with me on that paper. Um, It's quite interesting because there was a study, there was a a case in, uh, in UK that we wrote about, a fascinating case of a patient who had cancer, he was in bad shape, he was on, he was on cancer immunosuppressant therapy, so he had a wrecked immune system. He caught COVID, he was in the hospital, he was very sick, he stayed in the hospital for 101 days. During that time, they were trying to treat him, and one of the things they did was they gave him uh, plasma, they gave him um, plasma from people who had recovered from COVID-19 with the, with the they had antibodies. So people had developed antibodies to the, to the virus by virtue of having recovered from it, and they gave this patient that, those antibodies from someone else with the hope that the antibodies could help him clear the virus. But because his immune system was so weak, the, the antibodies didn't work, the virus continued to thrive and it started to mutate very rapidly. And they observed that and they, they were following the actual strain that was appearing. And by the time he died, he had a new strain of the virus. It had something like 12 different mutations in that spike protein. So they are amazingly, RNA viruses are really good at mutating. And that virus was able to basically work its way around those antibodies because the antibodies were not helping the person to clear the virus, but the, it was helping the virus to learn how it should reshape itself in order to be able to use those antibodies to its good advantage. Mm. So it, it ends up with the virus winning. You've got these antibodies that train the virus to perfect its own skills so that those antibodies will work in its favor, and that will then cause ADE. You know, And I think that's what's happening with these strains. The Delta strain probably um, was facilitated by vaccinated people who were sick people who had who were immune compromised it gives the virus a wonderful opportunity to hone its skills to be uh, to readjust itself so that it works the um, keeps the antibodies to work the way it wants them to to help it infect would it be different if people just got over over the virus naturally and didn't have the vaccine would there be be a different outcome I think we need to just let this virus go. We need to just pretend it's the flu and get on with life. You know, it's killing off. Unfortunately, it's killing people. But the people who are being killed are the ones who are sick already. Yeah. You're seeing all these diseases that are, you know, risk factors. People need to get their health in shape. They need to live a healthy lifestyle, improve their health. Each individual needs to take upon themselves a mission of improving their lifestyle so that they can uh, resist um, being killed by the, vac- by the virus. And, and of course, there's ways to treat, too. And when you get the infection, people, you know, naturopaths are finding effective treatments involving simple things like zinc and vitamin C and vitamin D, you know, and, and of course, there's ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. There are these old drugs that people are finding if you use them early in the disease process. You can keep people out of the hospital. I know naturopaths who have treated lots of patients and not one of them has ended up in the hospital. 
So it's possible to treat this virus. It's possible to protect yourself from this virus by living a healthy lifestyle. The vaccine is not the right answer. I don't think there's any way that I can see that the vaccine is the right answer to this mess that we're in right now. The, the risk factors are there, and you've outlined them really well in your article. I'm just surprised that the scientific community in general are not looking more seriously at these things because these are potentially catastrophic outcomes for the species. I know. I, I agree. I agree. It's frustrating. Uh, you know, many medical people, I think there must be many medical people who are aware that these uh, vaccines are not working and that they're really toxic and they don't dare speak up because they can lose their license to practice medicine, which is just really, really sad. I mean, that we've we've gotten so far away from where we need to be to, to heal this earth, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, so, some of the, the uh, commentary, commentary I've been seeing online by, by pro-vaxxers pro actually mainly is quite, quite disturbing. disturbing. Uh, to, to say, say the least, least. It's, it's, it's extremely, extremely aggressive. aggressive. Um, I've, I've even, I've even seen, seen blue check marks on Twitter, uh, call for people to be locked up and various other things, things. Uh, mm. you know, can't, can't go to stores, can't go to shops. And, and I find whenever things get politicized like that, there's very little chance of a rational argument emerging. Do you, Do you see any hope for a rational outcome to this? Or are you more... Um, negative about where this is going to go <laughs> what my big hope my big big hope is that aid is going to bite us in the ass so to speak i mean we're <laughs> going to be <laughs> to speak crudely i think that um if this does happen that it turns out that vaccinated people are at higher risk than the unvaccinated which i think may happen in time they're not going to be able to hide that that that's happening they're not going to be able to hide it and at some point, they're going to have to admit that the vaccine idea has failed. You know, if they're going to get people to line up and get another round of vaccines, and especially people who had already very intense reactions to the first one that really scared them, are they going to be willing to do it again? And especially if they see the first one only lasted for a few months, you know, I don't know how many people are going to be willing to just line up like sheep and get this and have this happen to them until they finally die of Parkinson's disease. I mean, I think it's just People need to wake up. I mean, people need to educate themselves. You can read the literature as well as anybody, you know, really. And you can train yourself. Today, you can look up words on the web. I mean, you can become educated if you really care. Uh, inform yourself. Decide for yourself whether you, whether you think it's really okay for you to get injected with these poisons, because I certainly think it's not. And um, I, I've read a lot, and, and, and that's what everybody needs to do. They need to become informed. And, of course, that's hard, too, because most of the information is, is suppressed. And people are coming out with all kinds of horrendous consequences of these vaccines. It's getting shut down from the web, you know, censored. So it's, it's very frustrating. The correct, uh, sorry, creator of the vaccine himself, or the, this type, the class of vaccine, I think Dr. Robert Malone, um, I saw him quoted on uh, Twitter the other day, he said, the biggest challenge with a new pandemic is to recognize what it is, a disease which does not fit the epidemiology and response paradigms of past outbreaks and will demand effort, resources, unparalleled collaboration, and above all, open-mindedness when formulating responses. And I've got to say, I'm not seeing that anywhere. And this is the guy that invented the things. <laughs> so if he can't get that message through, I'm, I'm feeling... It's really amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's just uh, really very respected and well-educated and articulate people who have a lot of good things to say, and they get censored because they've, they haven't gone along with them, with mm. the message, you know? Yeah. They've yeah. rebelled against <laughs> the intention of the 
of the people in power. I I I am just um, you know flabbergasted. I just don't understand how we've let the world get to this point. Um, it's really sad. It's a sad statement of the human species, really. It is, and I think it's been politicized. And and in times where there is such a demarcation between literally sides these days, two sides. There's no subtlety. Uh, it's very easy to use that um, in a way that you can say, oh, that's a, I don't know, right-wing conspiracy thing. You know, anti-vaxxers are all crazy and I'm pro-science and uh, I just believe whatever I'm told. So it gets politicized and I think by extension, people don't think about it. They're precluded right. from thinking about it. And they can't talk about it either, right? Because yeah. you won't even bring it up in conversation if you don't know where the other person stands because you're afraid yeah. you're going to get clobbered. It's so amazing. This kind of polarization prevents discussion. We really should be having very active discussions and debates, you know, debates between pro and anti on television. I mean, they really should be doing this to get people to just clarify their point of view, defend it, you know, argue why they believe that way and, and uh, make it all very, um, very active and, and um, invisible. They're doing the opposite, you know, because they're just clobbering anybody who dares to say that these vaccines aren't perfect. Mm. In terms of the future, I can foresee potentially a future where in Australia, for example, people get the flu shot every year. It's very ineffective, even by their own data, it barely works. The reason it doesn't work is because we base our vaccine on the North American strain uh, that winter prior. And by the time we get it down here, it's often another strain. And as a result, the vaccine may or probably don't, won't work effectively. And may even work negatively because I think that the, every flu vaccine weakens your innate immune system. So you're more susceptible to the strains that don't match. Sure. And to other yeah. viruses that cause flu-like symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you have viral shedding, which is another thing that you talk about, um, which I'm skeptical of that as well. Not skeptical of it, but, um, you know, uh, it, it seems like a possibility to me that that, that could be. A, well, that's a, the exosomes, you know, that's the exosomes, I think, because those are those are little uh, they can. I mean, it's shown it's been shown that exosomes can get shed through the lungs, probably through the skin. Um, mm. in the milk, in the breast milk. I know there was a baby that died, five months old baby um, that died one day after its mother got the second uh, vaccine, mRNA vaccine. It's, it's terrible. And it seems to me like there is definitely a business side to all this. It's this perennial sickness industry, I think. It's inoculating people constantly. And it seems to me from what you're describing that the sickness is getting worse it's getting more pronounced and as a result you need more products for parkinson's and all these other illnesses exactly. that flow and on the products don't work either so yeah. expensive. <laughs> this new alzheimer's drug you know i don't know if you've heard about it but no, it's extremely no. expensive i and it has had very poor um you know it, it, it it's not clear at all that it works basically and it's extremely expensive and it, it's a, a dealing with amyloid beta so it's just i mean it's just really incredible that they bring out these things that are so worse than useless, I think, in many cases. And people are so desperate for something that they're willing to to try it, you know? They've really got us, you've really got you in a bad place when you're very sick. You just like, mm. give me something. I need something to fix this. Yeah. And they they know that. So they're, they're quite happy, I think, to, I think they probably love glyphosate because it's creating all these illnesses that are allowing them to sell all these drugs, you know? It's easy to become conspiratorial, I think, Stephanie. And, and I'm definitely inclined to that, when I see the machinery behind it all, I find it difficult not to think that there are interests sometimes that 
benefit from these kinds of things in such a way that, put it this way, if if there was a malevolent group entity of some kind, and please hear me out, you don't have to answer this. This is just some stuff that I've been thinking about. Um, that the virus itself, um, in conjunction with many of these potentially catastrophic and self-defeating effects of this vaccine, could put humankind in like a perennial position of just needing medicine constantly over and over again. Is it such a flight of fancy to think that someone could release something like this for this reason? I mean, is it? I know. I mean, that's the thing with, I think that, you know, whether they knew, I think they, they knew glyphosate was toxic when they approved it. I mean, the, uh, the, the company knew it from their studies, but um, whether they don't care that it's toxic or whether there's actually a gosh, it wouldn't be so bad if people got sick, then we'd make more money kind of thought, you know, mm. it sounds so awful. And, and when I first entertained that thought, I really didn't want to believe it. But as I've lived longer and seen more, it becomes increasingly um, the most logical way to explain things. I mean, things are so bizarre and you, you're seeking a way to make rational sense out of it. And if you think about the fact that people make money when people are sick and the U.S. government, you know, doesn't can't figure out how to support the medical system in our country because so many people are in so much need. The expenses are out of sight. You know, we, we can't solve the medical care problem in this country. We're very sick. And, and, um, and the, but the government never seems to step back and say, geez, I wonder why Americans are so sick. You know, they don't do that. And, and I really think glyphosate is a major player in the disease process and a major player in causing uh, bad outcomes with COVID-19. So if we could just get rid of the glyphosate, I think we'd get a long ways towards a solution that would be much more pleasant and, and productive for everybody. Absolutely. And <clears throat> here's hoping uh, it can be done. I think people are becoming more aware of diet and uh, glyphosate and various other things and where they're getting their food from and types of agriculture. So I can only hope that these grass uh, root movements uh, end up really expanding. And I think they are. I think there is a glimmer of hope, but uh, I guess we'll see. Well, I think that's it's an excellent way to, to finish up. Um, this has been a really dense talk. There's a hell of a lot of information, and I know I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. For the, for the audience, I'm going to put links to Stephanie's excellent book, um, which I've just recently finished reading, and I think everyone should read it. It's really good. Um, and as well, the article that I've... Um, spoken about today and and uh, referenced today which i'll also put in the show notes um i'm just wondering stephanie um do you have any parting words uh perhaps even some advice about how people should try to manage this personally this difficult time <laughs> i think i've kind of given the advice that i would give which is this uh certified organic whole foods diet spend the extra money on the food and you will get that money back and you'll feel a lot healthier so you'll be a lot happier in doing that, it's worth it to spend more money, get the really high quality food, um, eat well, and then get out in the sunlight, make sure your vitamin D is up and also just sunlight in general. Uh, as far as medicines, I really don't, uh, I don't even advocate taking supplements if you can avoid it. I think it's better to get your nutrition through natural foods, but I do uh, recommend Epsom salt baths, which is a pretty easy thing to do to just throw some Epsom salts into some hot, hot water and soak. It's very relaxing. And the Epsom salts contain both magnesium and sulfate, both of which are critical nutrients that are deficient and are systemically in part because of glyphosate. Excellent parting advice. And I can definitely get right behind that. 
So, uh, Stephanie, thank you for coming on. It's been wonderful. And uh, perhaps next time we can, we can do something more on glyphosate because uh, we definitely left a lot on the table there. And I, it's definitely a, a, something that I'm passionate about is, is agriculture. Right. Yes. And I think the sustainable, re renewable agriculture is the way to go. Small farms. I think we go, need to go back to the small family farm. Absolutely. And I think we will by necessity, even if, um, yes. if they don't make us do it. But, uh, All right. <laughs> time will exactly. tell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for you. This.